This episode of the Sportsman's Empire is brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Since 1952, Interstate Batteries has been evoking compassion and a trustworthy spirit into the surrounding communities. Interstate Batteries is a mission-driven company fueled by purpose and guided by their values. If you need help locating a specific battery, stop into your local Interstate Batteries retail store and speak with a battery specialist. They even offer cell phone repairs. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go again with another episode of the Hunting Gear Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have Brian Broderick from Day Six Gear. All right, and not only does this guy design uh, and is the owner of, of Day Six Gear uh, and really high quality hunting equipment, but you know, arrows, broadheads, uh, now a knife. We'll, we'll get into all that here, but he's a slayer. So I love having guys like him on that can tackle not only the conversation of deer hunting strategy, but also hunting gear and accessories and how those two intertwine. And you'll hear in this episode that compared to others, let's say if you're going to compare this episode to some other podcasts uh, that we've had, I've had some guys on here who talk about their products but don't necessarily know how it functions in a hunting environment. Brian can do that. He can compare. He can talk. He can say, well, you don't want this because what if, what if in this scenario, uh, you know, you're spotting stalking a mule deer or vice versa or, you know, whatever the case may be. Throw a scenario out there, this dude's been in it, and he can talk about what kind of gear he likes, he dislikes, and why when he designs new products, it's for stuff that actually functions in the field. So um, huge shout out to Brian for taking time out of his day to hop on the podcast. Um, We BS about hunting gear and equipment. We talk about fads and trends. We talk about day six gear, and uh, it's a a fun and educational episode, Uh, and I strongly suggest, you know, I don't have any ties with day six. But I will say this, they have badass arrows, they have badass products, and it's from a hardcore hunter, right? It's not from some guy who who just sits behind a desk all day and is like, you know what, I think I'm going to design this because it fills a gap or it fills a niche in our company, not not with this company. And so that's why I like having him on and, and talking. So anyway, um, before we get into today's episode, though, I, I am going to say that within... My goal is to do this. This is launching on Thursday. Maybe on Friday, I'm going to go shed hunting. While I'm out shed hunting, I am going to... Whoops, that's inappropriate. Uh, I'm going to hang up on that. I'm not going to edit that out. I'm just going to keep going. But uh, uh, while I'm out hunting or shed hunting, I am going to be freshening up all of my mock scrapes. And I know a lot of you are like, hey, well, why, why, why... freshen up your mock scrapes before like well before the season or well after the season well i want to turn these locations into places that the deer want to visit all the time every day all the time and and why because 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 uh, i want them to be comfortable getting it i want to put tree stands 
within shooting range of those locations and then I want to shoot the biggest baddest buck on the property when it walks by so take that how you want to take it I'm going to be using the rope-a-dope system and some of the other scents that Code Blue offers for their mock scrape kits and uh, if you're looking for uh, the preorbital gland uh, for the, the rope-a-dope system they have that it works very well uh, they also have scent elimination products and on top of that they also what else do they have they have uh, scent elimination products and real and synthetic deer urines uh, as well so go to codebluesense.com uh, enter the discount code NFC20 and you will save 20% on your purchase. So remember, uh, mock scrapes aren't for just hunting season. They're for all year round to get deer comfortable. All right, what are we talking about now? That's it. Oh, before we get into this, just some quick housekeeping. Do me a big favor. Go to iTunes.com. Uh, give the, the Hunting Gear Podcast and the Nine Finger Chronicles a five-star review. Go check out my new uh, clothing line full sneak gear and uh, go follow that on uh, Instagram. If you could go to Instagram, I can't do anything, any type of advertising or certain things until I get to a thousand followers. So if I could get to a thousand followers, then I can start promoting my business a little bit more. And so I would really appreciate it if you would go to full sneak, uh, full sneak gear Instagram page and uh, give it a follow. So appreciate that. Now, we can get into today's episode with Brian Broderick of Day 6 Gear. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Hunting Gear Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we are joined by owner of Day 6. Is it Day 6 Gear or just Day 6? Day 6 Gear. Day 6 Gear. Brian Broderick. Brian, man, how we, how we, how we doing? Good, good. It's... Uh good to be on here with you mm-hmm. man it's been a while since we've we've talked i believe you have been on this podcast before and then you've also been on the nine finger chronicles podcast for uh some sort of bs session about your your journeys as a as a bow hunter and things like that and yeah uh, it's been a few years though, yeah. since we've talked i think yeah for sure yeah. and uh we'll we'll uh we'll catch up at some point um, but today I kind of want to stick to the, the gear side of things. I know that, uh, your sure. day six has introduced some, some, uh, new SKUs and some new products within the last 365 days, if not longer. Yeah. And, uh, I want to talk about that today, but before we get into all that, how'd your season go this year? Oh, it was really good. Um, I committed to, uh, for my Western stuff, just hunting around our house, mm-hmm. um, and uh in every hunt that i had this year i literally left my driveway in my side by side and hunted from my house i was committed to learn you know the mountain range behind us yeah and uh it worked out really well i killed a a great antelope early um and then my wife killed the first thing she's ever killed (laughs) we've been together 35 years she's never hunted and she says i think i would enjoy hunting the antelope so uh, she got a really nice antelope, bigger than anything I've ever killed, and um, then uh, pushed my uh, my mule deer to the last second. But I had one targeted with kind of some cheaters and extras, and I ended up killing him. And uh, believe it or not, ended up pushing my my elk to um, uh, like the the to November. Yeah. Um, 
which I've never, you know, I've only ever hunted them on public and hunted them one week and, um, coming from Alabama, you know, so when we moved out to Wyoming, I just had the luxury of hunting them as a resident yeah. longer. So, uh, actually passed my first six point bull this year. I've never passed a bull in my life. And, um, but, uh, yeah, this was my, this was my first time doing it as a resident. It was super fun. I got to really target, try to target a, a bull and hunt him over and over. Um, but I had to go to Oklahoma to our place out there. So I had two days left before I left for Oklahoma and I ended up killing a really good bull, not the one I was after, but, uh, yeah. a, a, still a good one. But, um, yeah, it was great. The, the bull I was after was a giant five point, which I'm a sucker for. Yeah. Um, and I had him at 70 yards, but the bull I killed was like 48 and yeah. I just couldn't, you know, I don't shoot far. I don't think it's for me, it's not, not the way to go. So, yeah. uh, I, I put an arrow through him and it worked out good. And, um, it was my 20th bull. Oh, wow. And 20th archery bull. I've never killed one with a gun. And it's the first time in 30 years of hunting them that I actually could drive right to it with the side by side and I winched, it. <laughs> I winched it into the back with the winch and didn't have to cut it and pack it and i thought oh my gosh this must be what heaven's like <laughs> so that'll so, that alone is why some guys you know go to outfitters right where exactly where they don't have to do they can they can go enjoy the hunt they shoot it and then winch it in the back or pick it up with uh, the front end loader of a tractor yes that is correct and, oh you know what <laughs> That is, that is, uh, I, I actually misspoke there. I, I actually did, um, borrow a backhoe about 20 years ago. Okay. And, uh, and picked a, picked an elk up with that. Okay. Uh, it was on public land and, uh, but I, I borrowed that backhoe and picked it up and <laughs> set it in the truck cause it had died right by a road. Nice. But other than that, the, the other ones I've had to pack and, and and cry over and right. bleed over and all that good stuff. So yeah, it was, it was really nice. And then Oklahoma, gosh, Dan, um, it was so special this year because, um, we've had two, well, we've had three really good bucks that we've let go off that ranch for three years. Mm -hmm. And this year we knew they were going to be, big and special and uh and my neighbors i don't know if you've ever had tyrell roy on here mm -hmm. um but he lives in oklahoma he's an incredible bow hunter young guy good family man and um and his brother shane and if you've ever seen any of our films uh shane is our videographer and editor okay and so super talented guys just great men great family guys um incredible bow hunters they are our neighbor and they have, um, about 300 acres that join us. Mm -hmm. And, um, and by Halloween, they had killed two of those three bucks before I ever got there. <laughs> and so I was, I was a little heartbroken. Um, I was a little heartbroken and, um, and the third buck Tyrell had actually hit low in the leg. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh had not seen the deer again the deer just vanished and uh so i was a little depressed on my way over and then i saw that big deer he had come over on us and i hunted him for about six days and finally killed him and it was it's one of the craziest deer i've ever killed it's a real 
like gnarly, nasty, heavy, non-typical with just points going everywhere. Just one of those dream deer. Yeah. Um, so I, I was, I went, I guess, from depression to, uh, <laughs> to excitement pretty quick. Cause I, I didn't think it was going to be a very good season and it, it yeah. turned out to be a blessing. So yeah, that was, that was it. And then I came back and, um, you know, we had some cow tags, uh, with residents, we can get some cow tags. We had some cow tags to fill for meat and, um, it, yeah, it just, uh, just an incredible season. So, yeah. um, yeah, lucky and on all fronts. That's awesome, man. You, you just named two States that are high on my want to go hunt list, Wyoming and yep. Oklahoma. And well, Wyoming's closed. They closed it. So yeah, I believe you, you. can't come. Yeah. There's, I, there's, I, I believe they close you. the roads off and everything. So <laughs> no non-residents. Period. No, no non. No, you can't even buy gas if you don't have a <laughs> wild As that, like, okay, so I was I was doing some reading uh, on population, like as people start to leave the big the bigger cities, right? There, people are getting fed yeah. up with L.A. and California, or you know, people are starting to move to these more rural type environments. Sure. Except from from what I understand, Wyoming is actually continuously decreasing, decreasing in population. It is. And so if I'm going to move anywhere, tell you why, because of guys like you, (laughs) no, no, because of the crap outside my window right now. What's, what's going on? The winters, the winters will just, you know, kick your teeth. Yeah. They're tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's they're, they're hard winters. Um, uh, yeah, it's hell out here. You, no one should come. Yep. Yep. Hey, buddy, you, you can't trick, you can trick maybe some of these listeners, but you're not going to trick yeah. me. <laughs> well, and any, anybody will tell you, I'm really joking because I know, um, I know I am more than happy to help guys, uh, find the right places to hunt, use their points wisely. Yep. Uh, I've been hunting out here since 1996 and, um, it's, it is in all seriousness, it is so special. Oh yeah. And the, the reason it's special is because of two things. Um, there are no people, mm-hmm. um, and Wyoming is is uh, the game and fish department is very um, resident conscious. They yep. make sure that the residents are taken care of. Um, so when the non-residents do come, they don't have a lot of non-resident competition. Um, and I'll be honest with you, the, the other reason is that what I've noticed is that Wyoming residents have had it so good for so long that they don't really have to get after it mm-hmm. to, to fill their tags. They yeah. do a lot of hunting close to the road, a lot of hunting from their vehicles. Um, they have all season mm-hmm. to fill their tags so they can archery hunt or rifle hunt. And they have multiple seasons to do it. Yeah. So there's no pressure uh, to get it done in a week, like a non-resident traveling from out of state. Yeah. So as a non-resident, if you come here and lucky enough to get one of the tags, the hunting's really good um, if you're willing to put in just a little bit of effort. Yeah. You know, and uh, I've hunted just about all the Western states. I killed my first elk in 1991 in uh, New Mexico. And when I when I would come to Wyoming and hunt, it was almost like a vacation from public land hunting because <laughs> it wasn't full contact. Right. Racing to trailheads and racing people to the top of a mountain. I mean, none of that crap. And, um so yeah, it's it's pretty special out here. So, you know, if guys are willing to work just a little bit, they can yeah. be successful. Yeah, so it's it, it is it is wonderful. I think I'm 
this summer I'm getting ready to buy my eighth preference preference point for elk, and then I have I'll, it'll be like six for deer, and then six for uh, or no antelope, eight for antelope, and so oh really yep, and so I'm gonna like this you're in the wheelhouse, buddy. Yeah, I'm I'm sitting pretty as far as preference points for for. Uh, uh, Wyoming, uh, but it's now is the time where it's like full, full blown kid activities in the fall. So, yep. Like when I do this Wyoming, when I cash in on, on Wyoming, I'm gonna do it right. It's gonna be really well thought out, and I'm gonna be staying for. My wife doesn't know this yet, but for a, okay. a extended, she doesn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, an extended period of time, because this has taken me so long to collect this type of. Um, and I'm going to be somewhat picky uh, on on some of this stuff because I have I have goals and dreams of you know like hey I want a big mule deer hanging in my house and I want a big elk yeah. you know I don't need a lot of them because realistically I can't make it out to hunt elk and and mule deer every you know that that giant you know the giant quality and so uh, when I do it I'm going to do it right. And, uh, and you know, if I play my cards right, I might be able to kick off three bucket list animals in, in, in a handful of years. If I, if I play my cards, right. Well, so I'm really looking forward to that. I'm happy to help you with that. Um, so you're approaching the right amount of points for some of the animals. Mm -hmm. Um, my number one piece of advice for you, cause I have guys that do this all the time is do not try to stack two species on top of each other in one hunt. No okay. matter how long you're going to come for, gotcha. because um, where for most of the state where you're going to find really good elk hunting and really good elk, you're probably not going to find really good species or really good quality animals of the other two. Gotcha. And so, and then, so when you have nine elk points, I got you covered. Gotcha. Like good public land hunting, fantastic bulls some good access through some people that'll let you know let you pay for very little money for access to get to public mm -hmm. and you can kill a great great bull um nine points on antelope same thing yeah um I, you know we have I, I i know you know certain ranches out here that charge fifty dollars for a trespass fee yeah on tens of thousands of acres for antelope so antelope is easy the mule deer is going to be the hard one because like you have enough points now to kill a great mule deer, but you're going to have to go to those areas that if you don't have horses or llamas or anything mm -hmm. like that, you're not going to get to them. And, and on top of that, even when you get to them, they may be across a Canyon that you'll have to drop 2000 feet and climb 2000 feet. And it's hard. Yep. It's really hard. Um, but uh, when you get nine or 10 deer points, you start to be able to draw um, some of those units that are in more of the uh, arid uh, arid areas, uh, some of the desert stuff, uh, foothills things, um, and there's giant deer there as well. And yeah. that would be more conducive to what, you know, to make sure that you're successful with it. And yeah. I'll help you with all that. Happy to. Yeah. Oh, man. yeah heck that's that's awesome um yeah and then the next state you mentioned was oklahoma i actually yeah. am thinking about buying a, a buying a turkey tag this year from oklahoma and going to do a turkey hunt slash scouting mission for this upcoming 
for this upcoming uh, season because more than likely I'm going to draw Kansas this year. And if I'm down, yep. if I'm down there in Kansas, I might as well hunt over the counter Oklahoma. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, I'm really. And where we hunt is is we're only 11 miles south of Kansas. Yeah, yeah. So we're 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 right there, and it's um, yeah, it's fantastic hunting. You know, there's a there is definitely a. a uh, a noticeable delta between the quality of hunting between the public and private, yep. just like anywhere else. Well, I wouldn't say anywhere else. I mean, Kansas public is, is some of that's as good as the private. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it, there's definitely a, a pretty good distinction between the two in Oklahoma, but there's, uh, the beauty of it is, is that, man, if you got lucky and killed a nice buck in Kansas early, you can just drive to a Walmart in Oklahoma and buy yep. a tag over the counter. Yep. And it, and as a non-resident, um, if you buy an archery tag, you automatically get two bucks on that tag. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a really good gig if you yeah. think about it compared to the other States. Yeah. Um, but again, there's, it's not like a uniform thing in kansas where like there's just about everywhere in kansas that if you're in a good area all the property is good yeah where in oklahoma there is still that distinction between really good stuff and then really crappy places so you know you're you're kind of rolling the dice but there's some monsters there i mean the the three bucks with that we were lucky to kill this year um with other two guys you know there was one over 190 and one over 180 and mine was in the 70s so yeah i mean you can't I mean that's Kansas numbers anywhere yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you can buy a tag at Walmart. So yeah, heck yeah. All right, so. um, I kind of want to shift into the hunting gear now. And okay. be- before we get into the day the day six stuff, um, sure. You know, I- I've talked to you several times about you know day six, and we I think uh, past episodes we've talked about arrows and things like this, and and yeah. I know I know personally that day six has some really quality gear, but I want to talk about gear that is not day six for okay. a, a little bit. And I want to, like you want to talk about not quality gear. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to talk about uh, while, while you go out on your hunts, right? I'm joking. No, yeah. I, I understand. Uh, yeah. But when you go out on your hunts, I'll, let's talk yeah. about a couple products that you, whether it's for maybe for whitetail or when you're going out chasing elk or muleys or antelope, what are some, a sure. couple products that you just do not sacrifice on and they're, they're products that you use every year religiously and you really like them? So I'll, I can do like a short list for whitetail and Western. I, I Actually, I think maybe some of this stuff people haven't, don't know about maybe um, and would be maybe really beneficial for them to hear this, but so for whitetails um depending on where i where i am uh i do a lot of hunting um on the ground in oklahoma mm-hmm. uh actually most of the i'd say 90 percent of the bucks i've killed in the last 10 years have been on the ground so you have to have you have to be super conscious of sand spurs yes so a lot of people wear like a mountain style boot with a gator mm-hmm. um or they wear, uh, you know, like uh, uh, like a rubber knee boot or a neoprene type. But those just 
both of those things get completely destroyed with the sand spurs and all. Uh, additionally, you're, if you're going to be doing spot and stalk out in the, even Kansas is the same way. Uh, you're going to have them stuck all in your knees. Mm -hmm. So what I have is a couple of things. I have, um, uh, I wear a boot that I get made fun of a lot, but I've worn these boots for 22 years now. Mm -hmm. I have one pair that is 22 years old. Um, but I had to, um, I've started having to tape them up a little bit. Yeah. But they're, they're called Dewberries. Dewberries. Um, yep. Yep. It's D U D U B A R R Y or A R Y. I can't remember. But anyway, uh, they're made in, uh, Ireland and, um, they are a leather boot, but they have a Gore-Tex liner and they're a knee boot. Um, so I cannot stand rubber boots Yep. because my feet absolutely freeze in those things. Um, even the ones that have all the heavy insulation, they still freeze. Um, and then they're not durable with these sand spurs at all. So one of the, one of the tricks that I learned 20 years ago to keeping my feet warm, um, is to wear non-insulated boots. That is key number one. Yep. Uh, cause you're not going to be able to just airlift yourself to the stand. You have to walk there Yep. and your feet and everybody's feet sweat quickly. And so, um, anyway, long story short, uh, I discovered the boot blankets, uh, years ago. And so I wear uninsulated boots. I have boot blankets in my pack. Now they used to be the big puffy boot blankets. Mm -hmm. Now Arctic shield makes these little thin ones. Bingo. And that is, that is the game changer for if you want a game changing piece of equipment, uh, uninsulated boots and very comfortable boots. Make sure you have them big enough where there's a little bit of airspace. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't want them super tight. And then once you get in the stand, pull those boot blankets on, you're done. Yep. Game changer. N doesn't matter what the temperature is. You're not getting cold. Yep. So <clears throat> to continue that product, those boots are super heavy, durable leather all the way to the top. Mm hmm and they turn, um, they turn the uh, sand spurs like crazy. And what I do, which is a little different, is I have a pair of short gaiters that are like safari style mm -hmm. um, that are just for turning thorns and briars like African type stuff. And I put those, I get a, you know, a little bit larger size, and I put those at the top of those dewberries uh, like a like a boot flashing they go at the top of the dewberries and then they go right over the top just over the top of my knee and so that way you don't have that super loud gator when you're trying to go through that you know that uh crp grass or whatever mm -hmm. um that makes a lot of noise and you just have the extra reinforcement right over your knee and so when you go down on your knees to shoot you don't get the sand spurs that are sticking through yeah um and then the other thing is is uh with regards to gloves, like I, I try to find a higher quality leather glove that has a lining mm -hmm. instead of these quote hunting brand gloves. Mm -hmm. um, excuse me, because the, <clears throat> the, uh, all the hunting gloves, they're not, 
they're not made to like turn thorns and briars and things like that. That they're good about keeping you warm, but there's no replacement for a good broken in pair of leather gloves for turning wind, Mm -hmm. but also turning briars and sand spurs and things like that. Um, So those are two things that are, you know, key for me. Um, And then honestly, like as far as the archery archery equipment goes, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I've shot a drop away rest once mm-hmm. in my life. I remember you saying this. Yeah. I told you and it failed. Yeah. And I went right back to the whisker biscuit. Yeah. So for a whitetail hunter, the difference in accuracy between a whisker biscuit and a drop away zero to 40, it's not measurable. It's just not, Yeah, you know, where you're going to see a measurable difference is 80 to a hundred. So I can't shoot at an animal that far. I'm not going to, if even I could, but so why would you have a rest on your archery equipment that you have to constantly manage your arrow on the bow? It's constant, yeah. you know, um, versus a whisker biscuit that's going to have it indexed and held right in place, right where you want it all the time. Yeah. It's dead quiet. It's never going to freeze. It's never going to fail and it's never going to get trash in it and keep it from dropping out of the way. So, and then, you know, if you are doing anything off the ground, my gosh, I mean, those things are a dream. If you're spotting and stalking any kind of species, they're a dream because with a drop away, you're constantly having to manage that arrow flopping around on your bow. It's, I don't understand it. It's the dumbest crap I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) I mean, Either you're going to set your bow up to wear bedazzled jeans and go to attack shoot, or you're going to set your bow up to kill shit, you know? Right? I mean, what? I mean, seriously. So I, I don't understand. And people make fun of me for having a whisker biscuit, you know? God, I love, I love the way you talk. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I get it, man. You know, like, when whenever you you talk to engineers right or people who have been engineers the word latin for wrong yeah and so uh you but anytime or in a process the more movement in something the more parts in something usually creates inefficiencies in whether that is a process or it's a product right correct potential you know a potential for air. So I myself still shoot a, a limb driven drop away rest. Um, yep. but everything you said about the whisker biscuit, I have a whisker biscuit on one of my other bows that I shoot downstairs. And it's more of like a, it's an older bow. I shoot it for fun sometimes just basically for nostalgic reasons, but I have that whisker biscuit on there. And every time I shoot that bow, I think of you basically saying dude like i think i think your exact quote was if i could weld a sight to my bow i would do it everything yeah everything yeah or rest yeah. to my if bow i could I would weld it all yeah yeah yep no screws no bolts no springs yep you know uh kevin vistason that has the deer hunter podcast yep yep this is several years ago and kevin's a great guy and um he was reaching out to me and he had uh, a new bow that he was trying to tune and work on he's like golly i just i keep having this same issue and i can't figure out how to fix it i said it's your rest 
no, 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 it's not that. I mean, I've done this. It's not that. I said, it's your rest. And he said, no, no, no. <laughs> well, he lives, I guess, not far from the bow factory there. Yep. And so he took the bow in. He called me on his way back and he said, I walked in, they grabbed the bow. The first thing they did was unbolt the rest, put it on the counter and bolt a whisker biscuit on it to test it. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was. But when you go to a bow factory, what they're doing is they're isolating everything to the bow. And so the first thing they do is take the variable off, mm -hmm. which is the drop away rest. Yep. So <clears throat> if a drop away rest has two to three percent chance of failure, why in the hell would you shoot it? Yeah. When there's something out there that has zero percent chance of failure. Yeah. You know, but you know, I guess you gotta hit the garden weasel at 90 yards at tack and you know, get a ribbon or whatever. I don't know, but not my pig, not my farm. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like piles of antlers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, so this, this year I've been, uh, I've been shooting my bow now for, I think this is the third season I've shot it. And so I, I say to myself, you know, I don't need a new bow every year, but I think this year I'm going to, I'm going to get a new bow. And, I have a whisker biscuit downstairs that I think I'm just going to put on it. And it is, uh, you, know, you know, like my, my furthest, I feel that the furthest that I'm going to put a, uh, take a shot, whether it's out West or here, like whitetail wise, I'm, I'm not even in position to take 60 yard shots. Right. I mean, everything, you know. everything that I shoot is going to be inside I mean, probably inside 25 at max, probably closer to 20 yards. But out west, right, you know, I need to extend that range to, to 60. And that's what my goal has always been is to try to get at least to 60 yards uh, for, mm -hmm. for a shot. And so, uh, man, I think, a, I think a whisker biscuit might be on my bow this upcoming season. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've killed a lot of whitetails over the years uh, just because I grew up in the South and had the opportunity mm -hmm. to shoot a lot. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> between those and Midwest whitetails, Texas whitetails, wherever I've ever hunted them, I've never killed a whitetail over 35 yards. Yeah. Um, I've never attempted a shot over that. So uh, I, I just don't think I don't think going past that is ethical on whitetails because they're 100% not going to be in the same position when the air gets there. Yeah. They just don't do it. They just don't, they don't stand there and they don't fall for the banana tailpipe, man. They're yeah. just, as soon as they hear something, they're moving. And so anyway, I just don't think that's, that's uh, or, or even a relevant factor. I, I think it's a psychology thing when it comes to setting up your boat. So number one, the tragedy that is the hunting industry and, and, um, and hunting social media has, um, has basically indoctrinated everyone into the, that you have to have a movable site. You have to have a drop away rest. You have to have, you know, two stabilizers. You have to have all these things. And for me, uh, you know, my position is you don't want any of that crap. Yeah. So 
but but the thing is is that so when you go buy a bow it's a major investment yes and so it's you know twelve hundred dollar bow that's pretty much what a bow costs now and then you start bolting everything on and you hell you're going to spend another thousand dollars on all the crap you put on it so what happens is is a guy's like you know you go buy you go buy a uh uh, a brand new truck it's got all the bells and whistles and it's totally loaded out and um and you don't want to put like you know some like off-brand cheap like topper on it or or uh you know some little dinky wheels or something like that i mean you, you've already spent all this money you want everything to be nice and that's the same approach guys have with a bow is they spend all this money on a bow and they look over and go, okay, well, there's a $50 whisker biscuit. I can't put that on this $1,200 bow. I have to go buy a $200, you know, mm-hmm. drop away. And and that's the mindset that they have, that yeah. it's, it's like putting lipstick on a pig, kind of like, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I get it. It's like, it's like buying a Ferrari and then getting like the cheap cloth interior, mm-hmm. like a, like a, like a bench seat, you know? Yep. You know, you, you want everything nice. And so, but that's how this, the mentality is. And so, um, you know, I think I want to start a whole movement, WBM whisker biscuits matter and and start getting guys back to killing stuff, you know? Yeah. And and listen, there's a lot of guys that are, this is probably not going to be very well received, but there's a lot of guys that are into hunting more for the pageantry of it than the actual hunting um you know these guys are spending their vacation days and save dollars you know to go get hotel rooms and travel and go to a a show or a um like a hunting show or a or a 3d you know three-day 3d shoot and they're spending you know 1500 bucks to two thousand dollars for a three or four day trip to go do that um to go you know, to the, to the beauty pageant instead of actually going hunting. So that's, there's two different types of hunters out there. There's, there's people that like to hunt and there's hunters and there's a distinct difference. Yeah. So it depends on what you're in it for. Yeah. You know, if, if the 3d shoot is more important and you want to shoot the 80 to hundred yard targets, then yeah, get you a drop away rest because at the end of the day, if that thing fails on target 12, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. But if it fails when you've just climbed a thousand feet to get a shot on a mule deer and you can't get the shot because your crap just fell apart. Yeah. Then, uh, so I'll tell you a funny story. I, you know, I'm a minimalist when it comes yep. to gear and I, uh, have had the same trigger release. Oh gosh. I've got one that's 15 years old and I've got one that's probably 10 and this year um, which I won't, I'm not going to say which, which release it was, but this year I got a new release that supposedly had a little easier, you know, like a little softer trigger, a sharper release on it. And so I, um, I constantly have, you know, my finger on that trigger on that release when it's in my pocket and I'm, I don't know, I'm just constantly kind of fiddling with it with my finger. Yep. And it locks forward and then it, it, you know, it just breaks when you ease it shut. Well, while I was sitting there fiddling with it in my pocket, uh, the afternoon before I killed that big deer in Oklahoma, I, it, something felt funny in my, it felt funny in my 
hand. I could feel something on my thumb side of the release that I'd never felt before. And so it was probably, I don't know, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I pulled my hand out of my pocket and looked, and there was a press pin that basically the mechanism uh, rotates on mm-hmm. had fallen out. It was gone. It wasn't in my pocket. It was, it was gone. And our camp is like 20 miles back to the west where our house is. And I was like, crap, this is ridiculous. So I went up to our my friend who is a rancher there. I went up to their barn where their, where their welding shop is um, and basically spent the afternoon up there fabbing a pin. And then I put it in their press and pressed, put the release back together and pressed that pin in and um, got that release back working. And then the next morning I killed that buck like 15 minutes after daylight. <laughs> but I was cussing that thing the whole time, mm-hmm. you know, sitting there thinking, this is supposed to be progress. This yeah. is supposed to be technology and progress and it's a super expensive re- a release. And the damn pen fell out. Yeah. Just fell out. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that rolls through my mind when I'm setting up gear is how do I keep this thing fail safe and bomb proof? Yeah. Um, as far as Western stuff goes, man, I see so many people come out here with chess rigs that look like baby Bjorns. I mean, they have so much crap on the front of their chest and they've got every accessory strapped to it. So two things are going to happen there. Um, Number one, if you're going to be a successful Western hunter, you got to spend a lot of time on your belly and especially with antelope. And that's not going to work when you've got basically got a backpack strapped to the front of your body. Um, Number two, uh, if, you're not used to wearing that thing every day, constantly. The shoulder, neck, and back fatigue that you're going to experience like day three or day four from wearing all that crap on the front is going to be excruciating. Now, like a Western guide or a guy that spends 60 days in the West hunting every day, they can carry a lot more stuff, and they're not going to experience the fatigue because they have it. They use it so much. But a guy coming from the East to the West, and you've bought all this crap, and you've got it up there, it's going to be painful and then you're going to be stripping stuff off. Mm-hmm. And so my suggestion, I'm not getting any brands cause it doesn't matter, but my suggestion is, um, get the sleekest, lightest, like most minimal, um, uh, bino harness that you can get. Um, have as little in that bino harness as possible. Keep it as light as possible and as close to your chest if that bino harness does not, if the if the top cover does not flip down and lay completely flush, then it's no good. If it has the lids that don't collapse and they just stick out, no bueno. It's not going to work. So not only is that going to impede your shot when you're trying to shoot, but it's also going to continue to open up when you're on your belly. Yeah. So you, you want something like for shooting that's going to be flush, though. So don't buy all those accessories. Don't put all that crap on the front. You have a backpack for a reason. Um, If you can get 
binoculars that have range finders in them, it's a game changer. Yeah. Because that's one less thing that you've got to that you've got to deal with. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing spot and stalk animals, you spend so much time with your binocular trying to pick up antler tips because you know, oh gosh, I'm I'm really in the I'm in the zone. I've got to be close, and you're, you you keep easing up, and you're trying to find antler tips. Um, the key to finding antler tips in the grass is the antler tips aren't moving. Yeah. So if there's any kind of wind, the what you're looking for is things that are stationary because the wind's pushing grass a certain way. You're all the thing you're trying to do is pick out something that's stationary. Yeah. And then when you can when you do that, you can pick out that there's a tine or something like that. But you're constantly using your binoculars, and if it already has a rangefinder in it, that's one less thing that you have to carry, one less thing that you have to raise to your face and have more movement. Mm-hmm. And so you're, what you're doing is reducing the amount of movement you have once you get into the red zone and you're super close to an animal. It, it's incredibly important. Um, like for me, the only thing that I have in my bino harness are binos. Yeah. I don't have anything else. Um, where do you keep, so uh, you have a range finder built into your binoculars now? I do. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then, um, but even if I had a, even if I had a range finder there, that would be the only, if I had a range finder, that would be the only other thing that I have. That's how my setup right is. My, my, yeah. my bino harness and then my range yep. finder right here. That's the only thing. And, and I actually, that's all you want. Yeah. Actually I do have wind checker. Uh, See, like, I, don't, I don't have the wind checker there. I have it in my, I just have it in my pocket. Yeah. Um, because here's here's the problem with things coming in and out of a bino harness accessory pouch, um, especially with regards to like um, let's let's start with like the rangefinder, okay? Yeah. So that rangefinder has got to be on a tether. It's got to be on the little springy like telephone cord looking thing. Yep. yep. Um, because a lot of times you only have a second, and you don't have time to get that rangefinder to fit back into that little pouch. Yep. You want to be able to range and then just drop it away and be able to put your hand straight to your string. You follow what I'm saying? Yep, understand. Minimize movement. So you want to be able to drop that thing on that tether and just let it hang there until you're done. Um, if you're doing a, a an external, you know, a separate range finder. And then with regards to the, um, the wind check stuff, it's the same thing. You're trying to get it back into those little pouches that are super small to where it's incredibly easy just to stick it back in your coat pocket or your pants pocket or whatever so and those are the only things that i have in my pockets is is wind check i don't really have anything else um so you know when you're super close on an animal especially spot and stalk on the ground your bow should always be straight in front of you it should be pulled tight to you and straight in front of you because basically what you're doing is you're trying to break your silhouette with your bow Mm mm-hmm um so you want it super close super tight so all your movement is limited so when you so let's say that you bring your range finder up you can do you know get a range drop it and but your finger's already right there at your d loop yeah. so you're minimizing <clears throat> excuse me minimizing movement so, so if you're having to take reach across that and get over into your other pouch to get your wind checker out and then try to put it back it's too much movement right and that's what I see people, especially on antelope and mule deer, where they really, you know, step on it is, um, is they bring their range funder up 10, 12 times constantly. Yeah. And finally the doe that you didn't see catches you and the yeah. whole thing blows out. Yep. 
So everything's got to be kept to a minimum. Um, and so that's why I keep everything super light like that. Uh, I have a, uh, this is going to sound goofy, but um, I have a flexible rubber flask, like a whiskey flask. Okay. That I keep in my pack because it's hard to carry water on a stalk. But you need it, especially if you get pinned down for a long time. I actually have this rubber flask that I got years ago um, that guys used to use them for sneaking booze into football games. Yep. And so, but the cool thing about that is, is that you can put that in your chest pocket or in your back pocket and have just enough water in there so you're not just dying of thirst. You don't need to yep. carry like, you know, two liters of water over going on a stall. That's like a weird thing that I have. Um, cause you, you know, you get really uh, dehydrated in the West fast. Yeah. Um, especially at elevation. So I have that where I'll just stick it in my pocket before I go on a stall. Of course I have my bulk water in my pack, but that thing's been a lifesaver for me. And I just, I put, um, the, uh, liquid IV in it, mm -hmm. which is supposed to double the whatever. Um, so those things are like things I can't do without. And again, Western stuff, leather gloves. Um, and then if you're going to wear gaiters, um, they've got to be quiet mm -hmm. and everybody makes a gator and all these hunting companies that make gaiters I often wonder, do they hunt because they're so loud? Um, the key to having really quiet gators is wearing your gators all the time. So if you're going to go Western hunting and you're going to buy a set of gators, man, I would wear those things when you're scouting, putting up tree stands, whatever on your whitetail stuff, whatever you're doing, wear them, break them in. Cause once you get them broken in a little bit, they become substantially quieter, yeah. which is important to me. Um, other than that, I mean, as far as boots go, honestly, from a guy coming east to west, you're not going to wear them enough to have to actually test like durability. So don't worry about that. It would be more comfort. And I would check the reviews on them just for one thing, which is if they're waterproof or do they leak? Yeah. Because there's some really expensive boots out there that once they get saturated with the dew off the grass, they just soak right through and you're miserable. Yeah. Um, I'm a leather boot guy. I like things that are mostly made out of leather. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I think that's important, but they definitely have to be quality and waterproof. Uh, that's really the only thing I look at. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So thanks for that insight there. Now let's get yep. into some day six. Uh, the question I have for you is, you know, you're a minimalist it, as, as a hunter overall. And so when right. you, when you guys sit around day six and start brainstorming about new products and new ideas to bring to the table, um, how does that minimalistic approach to hunting cross over onto product design? It's it's actually um, my wife always jokes that it would make some of the best reality TV. <laughs> out there. Um, she was just saying last night, I wish I could video these two. So Dakota, that's our general manager, he's 30 or 31 years old, uh, grew up in the boom of the hunting industry 
error. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, he worked for uh, the company that owns like um, the, uh, it's the outdoor group, I think before mm -hmm. they own uh, elite yeah. and uh, like the both sites and different things like that. Yeah. So he got a really, he's a design engineer. So he got really a really good education there. And, but that's kind of where he came through and he's an incredible target archer. Yeah. So, uh, amazing shot, incredible target archer, incredible bow tuner. And then you've got me, the old grumpy guy that doesn't want anything to move, squeak, rattle, come loose or fail. So it's just this really juxtaposition of two approaches <laughs> yep. of, of how to do things. And so we sit at the computer together and go back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> And the common theme for me is, why do you need that? Why do you need that? Why yeah. do you need that? You know, and so that's how we do it. And um, so what we do is, is we first identify the problem. We're not going to just sell something. Just to, we're not going to design and develop a product just to have something to fill a market. Okay. Right. Uh, like chase a trend or a fad. So, for example, I'll give you a great example. Um single bevel broadheads okay i could not count how many animals i've killed with a single bevel broadhead in the 80s and 90s because back then a lot of them were single bevels um so the single bevel broadhead came about because back then most broadheads were made in somebody's garage yep well they didn't have sophisticated equipment to actually hone a perfect double bevel edge and with a rasp and a file you can easily work one side and get a single bevel sharp edge. Um, and so that's how they came about. And then some, you know, guy looked at it and says, Oh gosh, the, the bevels are opposing. They must twist and spin. So that whole, you know, farce came about, but at the end of the day, go find a single bevel knife. They don't exist. Yeah. So why is that? The reason is, is because it is a unsupported edge and it's a weak edge. It doesn't maintain its sharpness. So the whole idea behind, like the only way you qualify or judge the quality of a knife is how, it, how sharp it is and how long it stays sharp, right? Right. This is the best knife I've ever had. Well, anybody that says that is going to tell you that because they have to sharpen it less. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a broadhead. So sharpness is so critical, so key. Why would you build and sell a broadhead that is going to retain, has a weaker edge, and is going to be worse at retaining its sharpness throughout the, the job it's trying to do? It makes no sense. But enter... Um, you know, Insta Google and the interweb, all that crap, and YouTube. And now here it is 30, 40 years later, single bevels are right back on the forefront and it's the greatest thing ever. And they rotate through the animal and everybody's leg humping the crap out of them. And that's what they're buying. And they're literally buying an inferior product. And listen, is it 50% inferior, you know, inferior of an edge? No five ten percent you see what i'm saying yeah. you're cutting hairs they're still going to work 
but they don't do what they say they're going to do. They don't rotate and breach bone and all that crap. It's that's all smoke and mirrors. It's been dispelled 30, 40 years ago. A double bevel edge is far superior. So to that end, you know, behind that big ramble there, um, if we were just going to design products to sell, we would have designed a single bevel two years ago when all this ranch fairy crap popped up and everybody started buying single bevels again. Um, because they, like, our guy that does our grinding on our blades begs me every every week, hey, man, when are we doing a single bevel? When are we doing a single bevel? I'll do them for half. It literally costs half as much to produce a single bevel as it does a double bevel because they're so easy to sharpen. Yeah, It's just a dream for the guys, the grinders, to sharpen, so they want to do it. But it doesn't make sense for us as a company that's trying to help hunters become more successful, more ethical, um, to produce something to them just to sell it to them because it's a fad. And yeah, we can sell a pile of them, but why would we sell an inferior product to them? If we do that, we're just like everybody else. Yeah. So that is kind of how this company designs products is we try to say, hey, where is there a real problem? Or where is there a real hole that needs to be filled? And so to that end, it, like this past season, um, I noticed that everybody has a knife. Every company has a knife of some sort. Yeah. Uh, not everyone, but most of them. Mm -hmm. Most companies, especially Western companies, they have a knife. And they have these um, laser-cut, ultralight knives that are all one piece, and they're just laser-cut out of a frame. You know what I'm talking about. Yep. Everybody's got them. So they're either they either have that knife that's a you know a fixed blade out of a good quality steel, or it's one of those ultralight frames with a replaceable blade. Yep. So you know I've purchased those. I've have them had them given to me. I've used them, and I'm I, you know I, I once I use these these products, I go golly. I mean. Do, do any of these people, have they, have any of these people ever worked up an elk on the side of a mountain? Yeah. You know, have you, have you ever stood in a skinning shed in Alabama and had to, you know, quarter up a dozen deer in a night? I mean, have, has any of these people actually ever put these knives to ultimate use? There's no way they have because while those knives are great and they're super light and they don't weigh anything, the hand fatigue on holding those things and trying to work up big game animals or multiple animals is, is next to impossible. Mm -hmm. It becomes painful. And then the other thing is with the, the problem with a fixed blade knife is after a certain period of time, especially for guys that don't know how to use a knife on an animal to, to retain the edge and the sharpness, it becomes dull and then it becomes useless. Yeah. Enter the uh, replaceable blade knife. You can change them out, and they're always um, always sharp. The problem with the replaceable blade knife is that, number one, they're extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Um, when they break, if you don't know they break, you're in big trouble. Uh, if you're on the side of a mountain at 11 o'clock at night, and you're on the second half of a, you flip the elk over, and you're working the second half of this elk up, and you're working in the blind, you know, you've got your knife under the hide, trying to roll the hide over. 
and that blade breaks and you don't know it and then you make your next pass there's nobody there to help you you know if you cut yourself i mean it's you're on your own um and then the other thing is is you have to properly dispose of all the blades that you work through when you're done you have to carry them out of there if you're an ethical guy most people don't they bury them so for me i just never was a replaceable blade guy so when i set out to design like the perfect knife in the beginning i was going to do a folder i've always I always have a really nice folder in my pocket and i was going to do a folder that has two blades like a trapper style that you could have two blades to work up, you know, an elk or whatever, um, and still have sharp a sharp edge all the way through. The problem with it, that is, is we we built them. I took them on hunts and used them. They're a little bit heavy and they're not comfortable. The fo- there's no way you can make the folders comfortable, especially when you have the one blade that's still folded and the one blade that's open your that other blades pushing on it and we never could get it where it was sleek and ergonomically um comfortable while you're working up an animal and then it just it just came to me uh one morning um that i was just overthinking the whole thing and we made um i came in the next day and told dakota i know what i want it's super simple here's what we're doing. And I handed him a hand drawing of the dragonfly. And, um, he's like, Oh my gosh, I feel really dumb now. I mean, why didn't we do this a year ago? And I said, why hadn't anybody done this? And so, you know, the dragonfly is basically just, it's a ultralight knife. And instead of having, when you, when you're cutting it out, instead of having one side as that ultralight frame, one side's the blade and the other side's the blade. And then we designed carbon fiber scales for the handle so it would actually be comfortable in your hand. We'd have a little bit of width there, but mm-hmm. there's the carbon weighs nothing. There's no weight. We designed that to encapsulate the other blade. Okay. So so while you're working, you have just a regular high-end custom knife. We did it out of Magna Cut, which is the holy grail of knife steels. And um, so when that side dulls, we just have... Uh, two Allen screws there um, that are called they're captive screws. So when you unscrew them, they can't fall out. You know they're they're connected to the uh, to the carbon fiber scale. And so our next hurdle was okay. Well, this is a great design. It's wonderful, but now the hunter is going to have to have an Allen tool with him to be able to change the scale over. And so we started trying to think about how to make that problem how do we solve that problem and so what i did is i took an allen key and, and when we made the kydex sheath we just took we got all the allen keys and gave them to our kydex sheath manufacturer and they embedded the allen key into the kydex sheath yeah. so just a little bit of it sticks out at the end so you have your key to you know change your blade over in your sheath that stays with the knife all the time. So as long as you have your knife in your sheath, you always have the tool. Super simple, nothing fancy, no switches, gadgets, levers, springs, nothing. It's just a bulletproof, bombproof knife that you can actually. For most guys, that knife will last them the whole season. Yeah. 
they can work up a few animals and then swap the blade over and, and run the whole season with it without having to sharpen it. For an elk hunter, you can work up one side. Once you roll the animal, you can swap your blade and work the other side. And there's nothing more pleasurable than having and uh, and more efficient than having a razor sharp blade throughout the whole process. Yeah. Um, and then we spent a lot of time on the carbon fiber scales for the handle. Mm-hmm. We wanted them as small and sleek and as light as possible. But we also there were dozens of revisions until the ergonomics of it was just perfect. So where there was no hard spots or hard corners that were going to hit your hand when you're working it up, because mm-hmm. that's where it stinks is when your hand starts to hurt, yeah. you know, when you're working through those things. So that was the, what we did in the fall. Um, everyone that we, everyone that bought one or saw it, or we sent one to said, why, you know, why has no one ever done this over all these years? Yeah. But I think it was just too obvious. Yeah. You know, and it was just, everything's been overthought so much. Um, so that's probably the coolest thing we've done. Now, I have um, a, I got a question on this. Fire one. away. Um, so is this a replaceable blade knife or no. no? So you use one side, you flip it, you use the other, and then you re- go back and resharpen both blades and put you it back it. in. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the blade, the blade thickness and the blade material is the same material that you would get on a really high-end custom knife. Okay. Um, same thickness, same everything. Um, if you did not know that there was another blade inside the scales, yeah, it would just look like a custom knife. Yeah. And that's what you would think it is. Um, no, I wanted a real knife. I didn't want a replaceable blade. They're oh. just, they're too flimsy and weak. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the EVO. Okay. So the Evo broadhead has been, you know, that's our broadheads that we've had for, uh, I guess, four years now, um, maybe pushing five. And so in the last few years, um, you're starting to see glue-in systems again mm-hmm. um, because everybody has gotten on the bandwagon of you have to be able to shoot the concrete wall in your mom's basement if, to have a... <laughs> a durable hunting arrow and it has to go on YouTube or it's a not effective system. And the word system is hilarious used quite often. Yeah. So anyway, so I find it comical because, you know, I was shooting glue in stuff in the eighties because yeah. <laughs> that's some of that stuff is all you could get, you right. know, but anyway, so our centric system component system, is pretty bomb proof uh the way it's designed and it indexes on the inside of the arrow not the out so it makes sure that it always spins perfect because it's orienting on the inside Mm -hmm. which is the straight part of an arrow and so uh dakota and i have built these um evo which 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 we just released called the evo cs which is basically the evo broadhead combined with our centric system component so it's the Evo centric system is what the CS stands for. So basically what we did is we made the Evo system, uh, the centric system component and the Evo broadhead all in one piece. So you don't screw the broadhead anymore. It's all one machined one piece. And so 
the, the, the hole in the system. All right, so this is, like I said earlier, we find a problem or a hole in the process, and we, if there's a way to provide a solution, day six, we'll build a product. If there's not a problem, we're not just going to build something to sell it. So the problem with all the glue-in systems right now is that they tout durability. You know, it's got an extended pin that runs way up into the arrow, which gives you perfect concentricity or perfect runout, so it spins perfect, and it's bomb-proof. And so, and let me let me back up a little bit. These are for four millimeter micro diameter arrows, the one six six diameter arrows, like what we make our HD series. Yep. So, <clears throat> so anyway. Um, so all these glue in systems came about and like you can slide a collar over the outside for, for durability. And then you glue the, the center, the long extended pin in here's the hole. Here's the problem. Um, this is all in the name of durability, right? Mm -hmm. But a component, an arrow, a broadhead, any of that stuff is only as durable or only as strong, uh, as the weakest part of that whole system. Doesn't matter what you have, wherever the weakest po point is, that's the failure point and that's where it's gonna fail. With a four millimeter arrow, <clears throat> the inside diameter is 166, right? Okay. So a uh, 204 arrow, which is the five millimeter, um, you know, that's what has a hit system. And the hit system is, you know, where the Easton has it, where you can stick the insert down into the arrow and then the broadhead will go all the way in and screw the threads will screw in down there and it'll sit flush with the end of the arrow. Well, that's because the shoulder like you have your broadhead ferrule and then it, the next piece is the smooth shoulder. Okay. And then the next part is the threaded shank. Well, that smooth so shoulder section on all heads, points, field points, broadheads, is 202 to 203 so it will fit that will actually slide inside of a 204 arrow and that's where the hit system came about so when you drop down to a micro diameter arrow a four millimeter arrow <clears throat> it has tons of benefits with regards to penetration wind drag flight durability all of the above the only downside is that you have to create a outsert insert system to receive a larger diameter broadhead, the smooth part of the broadhead, which is 202, 203. It won't fit inside the arrow, right? Okay. So you have to have some type of outsert component system, like our centric system. But, so with all these glue-in systems that everybody's designed now, all they did is right behind the body of the broadhead ferrule, they just reduced that 202, 203 smooth part of the broadhead they just reduced it to 165. They just took material out and made it the same diameter as the threaded part, which anybody that's ever looked at a field point knows that the smooth part is larger than the threaded part. So they just reduced all that, extended it, and you glue it in. The problem with that is, is that when you reduce the, the any kind of field point, broadhead, any of that, when you reduce it from, from 202, 203, which is industry standard down to 165, 166, which by the way, is a deep six broadhead. Mm -hmm. You remember the deep six stuff? Yeah. 
that Easton made, mm-hmm. well, they made the deep six. They just reduced that whole thing to that small diameter so it would go down into a micro, micro diameter arrow. They've never been popular. So you ask yourself, well, why haven't they been popular? Well, when you reduce the the shoulder of that head from 202, 203 down to 165, whatever, you know, you're thinking, oh, well, that's only like, you know, 25, 20, 25% difference it'll only be 25 or 25 percent weaker it's not it's like five times weaker so you have this little pin now so when that head point whatever it is hits anything at the slightest angle if it's not straight on perpendicular if it hits anything at the slightest angle it doesn't matter how long the pin is it doesn't matter if you have a collar because right there where the broadhead meets the front of the arrow or the collar you have a 164, 165 diameter pin going in, and that is the weak point. And it's going to snap right there. That's why deep six heads just never, you know, that technology never took off because they just pop off right there. There's not enough material. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. But that's what everybody's doing now in the name of durability, and it's actually less durable than just a standard glue-in head. I mean, screw-in head. Yeah. that has a larger diameter shank. So we said, okay, this is a trend. People are starting to chase it like the single bevel thing. We already have a solution for the single bevel. It's pretty simple. It's a double bevel broadhead. But I actually have been making this glue-in system for a while. It's this, you know, it's something that we've played with before. So what we did is we integrated the collar into the fer- the ferrule body of the broadhead. So when you do get to that point that you have to reduce the shank to 165 to get it to glue into the inside of a micro, right? we actually have a collar that bridges that. It bridges it left and right. Okay. So the collar is forward of it and behind it back over the arrow. So now it is a supported piece, not unsupported. Gotcha. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So just to be clear here, the, the, I guess I get not necessarily your competition, but when they were reducing material to make it fit multiple arrows that then, uh, basically created a weak point in the, in the system itself. And it really didn't it didn't solve the problem as opposed to now is this is this one piece of machined yes. head yes okay so yes. it's not multiple well we have to machine it in two pieces but then it's bonded together okay you see what i'm saying okay yeah, so we have it's it's threaded and we have you know a chemical bond too but once it's assembled it is one piece gotcha. yes Gotcha. Okay. So as the customer will, will receive it as one piece. Gotcha. So, yeah, so it's, it's, this is strictly as it relates to four millimeter micro diameter arrows. Yeah. This is what everyone is kind of going towards. And this is what these systems that are being designed is for. And you have to reduce the, the pin or the shank or the, the inside part of a head down to that inside diameter to get it to glue in. Yeah. But if it, at the end of the arrow, if the next piece at the end of the arrow is that smaller diameter, it's just going to snap off. So what we did is that we made that part of the broadhead arrow 
junction, we bridged it by having a collar that goes past it and behind it. So now, instead of having an unsupported 164, 165 diameter at the end of your arrow where it glues into your, you know, where it meets the, the broadhead body, it's now that plus the thickness and diameter of the collar. Gotcha. So it's, 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 it's a sleeve basically. And it's like joining two pieces of PVC pipe together. Yeah. Where the, where the, where the, um, butt joint or the sleeve, the butt sleeve, you know, the connection sleeve is yep. it's thicker right there. Yep. And so it, it keeps those two small pieces there where the joint is from flexing and breaking. And that's exactly what we did with this. So it actually does answer a question and solve a problem. Um, and you know, as far as like durability, yeah, it's, there's really not anything that you're going to be able to get. That's going to be tougher than that. Yeah. Um, and then as far as concentricity or run out, if you will, um, that extended shank, you know, glues into the inside diameter of the arrow, which is the straightest part. And it keeps it where it spins. Perfect. Gotcha. There's no way you're going to have any wobble at the end. So, and for guys that don't understand the way an arrow is made, if you just think about it as a, like a roll of paper towels, mm-hmm. that's how an arrow is made. So the cardboard tube is perfect. But if you think about once you roll all those layers around that cardboard tube, if you actually measured from the cardboard tube out at 12, 3, 6, and 9, you're going to get three different measurements okay. because it's not consistent all the way around. Right. And then wherever the the paper towel ends, let's say the paper towel ends at 12 o'clock. Okay. You're going to have say 41 layers there where it ends, but at six, you're only going to have 40. Okay. Make sense. Yep. So that's how an arrow is made. So if you were going to try to keep something perfectly straight, you would want to index that or orient that on the cardboard tube on the inside Mm -hmm. because it's perfect. Okay. And so that's the, the premise and concept behind stuff indexing on the inside of arrows. Gotcha. And so yeah. the, the, correct me if I'm wrong here, the whole point of your arrows and your broadheads and how those two things work in conjunction with each other is again, a minimalistic approach that, uh, there's less connection points. There's one solid projectile heading towards whatever it's being aimed at. Right. The goal is to create a monolithic, uh, a monolithic unit or a monolithic projectile. So you want everything once it's all bonded together to be one piece mm-hmm. and not have failure points, junction points, gotcha, loose parts, whatever. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, and one of the things that differentiates us from kind of everyone else is that when, in the, as far as the arrow world goes in the component world, you know, there's a lot of companies that sell components for arrows. Mm-hmm. And if those components are not designed to work in conjunction with that arrow perfectly, it's just kind of an aftermarket piece. Okay. And what is kind of glossed over is if there's no structural integrity to the arrow itself, it doesn't matter what you put on it for a component, 
or a collar or impact collars or whatever you want to call them. If the arrow itself is weak, it doesn't really matter what the component is because then the arrow becomes the weakest point. Mm -hmm. And you can put a really fancy, expensive component on the end of it. But if the arrow has no structural integrity, it's just going to break right behind the component. Yeah. So it doesn't, it, it, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. You're not doing anything. Right. So for us, when you look at our shafts and you look at comparable shafts, we have twice as much material in the wall thickness. And it's the way we build our arrows differently than everyone else, where we actually use more material, which is counterintuitive to the um, arrow industry as a whole, because they're trying to use as least amount of carbon as, a, as possible because it's crazy expensive. So least amount of material as possible to achieve the spine that you want, a 300, a 350, 250, whatever. We go the different approach because we use as much material we can while still achieving the spine. Right. And so it's a, it's really counterintuitive to what they're doing. The only reason that we can do it is we don't have the wholesale retail model. So we don't, we don't sell our shafts to dealers for 50% off a of retail, which is kind of industry standard. Mm -hmm. We actually put more money into the shaft. That's why we have to be consumer direct. Yeah. We don't have the ability, we don't have that margin available to us to sell it to the dealers for 50 off. Yeah. So that's why we do it the way we do it, but they are incredibly durable as yeah. you know. So. Yeah. And so that, that's just kind of like the motto or that's your mission statement because a lot of companies are focused on one thing and that is how can we make our end of year sales or whatever, like the highest. Oh, so let's, let's go back and reverse engineer the product to make it, you know, less profit. Yeah. Profit. Okay. Yeah. Profit. Yeah, there profitable. profitable. And you guys are making products first and then assigning a price to it. Uh, yep. and so I really like that. Um, I really, I really do like the way from a, just from a, a process or from a, a manufacturing and end of use, end of, you know, end of the line product. That's just really durable. And that's why I've continued to, to use your guys's arrows throughout the, the years just because I dude I just love them and I love the message that day six brings not just to the product side but just to you know some of the stuff you've said about putting lipstick on a pig you know and as far yeah. as the entire hunting industry as a whole I just really dig that and so that's why I, I use your guys's uh, arrows and stuff um what when someone says you know they they look at they judge your products based on price and not function like what yeah. what's your what is your response to that? Oh, that's super easy. So um, that's super, super easy. Uh, with regards to arrows, mm -hmm. um, you can go to Lancaster Archery, and they have all their arrows listed as uh, uh, per each. Like you can buy one arrow at a time from them, mm -hmm. okay? So go there and price all the arrows top end to bottom end and price them per arrow and see what the prices are. And then you come back to day six and price our arrow that includes 
the centric system component system. Mm-hmm. Now, all these other ones that you're going to buy are going to come with a 10 cent insert. It's five to 10 cents to make this little insert that you stick inside the arrow. That's what they come with. Where ours comes with a two piece fully built up, you know, collar system, you know, insert outsert collar system, which is very expensive to make. That we, by the way, make ourselves mm-hmm. in our shop on our own machinery in Casper, Wyoming. So, um, but you go through and price all those arrows, and then you price day six arrows, and just throw out just throw out the fact that we include a full component system that most people have to buy aftermarket to shore up an arrow mm-hmm. ours comes included and even with that when you price it our arrows are actually right in the middle okay they're not expensive somehow or another we got well uh, let me let me let me say this in all fairness when we first came out we were more expensive yes six years ago but I don't know if you've noticed the price of arrows over the last five or six years, especially since COVID. They've gone through the roof. Yeah, we haven't changed. We haven't changed our prices because we manufacture our stuff ourselves mm-hmm. with our own machines right right here at our place, to where everyone else is driven by all the costs and, and expenses that have just skyrocketed over the last five or six years to and from China. Like getting things to and from China now, shipping has tripled. Uh, the manufacturing has tripled. The taxes, everything has gone through the roof. So, what you're dealing with is is you're dealing with all of this associated logistics costs, uh, materials, shipping, all of that, yeah. taxes, all of that from the standard Asia to America process that is the hunting industry. We hadn't had that, so we haven't had to, you know, add fifty percent of our to our prices like a lot of a lot of people have. What's funny is is that, um, I honestly think we may be the only company in the archery industry that does not buy anything from China, nothing, and um, so. But what's funny is is I know that through friends in the industry and other businesses that prices have starting to stabilize and they've started to come back down and things are starting to correct again post COVID. But I hadn't noticed anyone lowering their prices and bringing them back. Yeah. They're keeping, they're keeping them where they're at. So that's my answer to the, we're expensive. We're actually not. And then to answer your, you know, what is our mission statement? You know, day six is basically this. I build the stuff I want and I build extras for others to buy. <laughs> that, that is what day six is all about. I like that. It's the stuff I've dreamed of having my entire life. Yeah. You know, and our broadheads are my dream. I mean, that's what I've wanted someone to make for my entire bow hunting career and no one's ever made it. They've come close here and there, yeah. but when it comes down to the fine details, they always just shortcut and produce it, whether it be, bleeder design or products from you know, the materialists used or whatever. Um, and, uh, and again, I, I don't know, as I've gotten older and seen how the world works a little bit and, you know, been around different countries and things, I have, I have a real hard, pro- I have a really hard time um, supporting things that come out of places like China, Yeah, you know, um, 
it it really hurts my heart when you see the you know some of the atrocities and um you know just human rights things that go on there it it just it's just not for me yeah you know so and so and i feel like i feel like there's an awakening here among the hunting industry there that people are starting to appreciate american-made stuff more don't you I, i i really do here's the issue um, I love if, if I, if I can, I would love to buy everything USA. Okay. Yep. But we all know that as of right now, uh, you know, when I go to the grocery store, what used to cost me a hundred dollars is now costing me $300. And yeah. when, you know, the, the price, you know, gas is kind of down right now, but, uh, but for the most part, gas, my, uh, my, my, my electricity is up. My, all my bills are up, right? I'm paying yep. more for, I have three kids, so I'm paying more for, so anyway, long story short, I'm just paying more money for everything these days. And so yep. if I can buy American, I will buy American. But if there's a price disparity uh, between the retail cost for me on made in America versus Chinese that, or yep. somewhere else, then there are times then I, that I will buy American. But as far as at the end of the day, right now for me, I'm just, you only like, have so many dollars. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm buying whatever is affordable at, at that time. So yeah. And I, and I understand that completely. I yeah. mean, we everyone's in the same boat. Right. Everybody's in the same situation, but, you know, what I've learned over the last 51 years on this earth is that um, a lot of times there's a reason things cost more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the buy once, cry once thing is um, something that really resonates with me now 100%. later in life. 100%. And, and it's that's basically how I approach everything now is I would rather do without for longer and then get what I feel is going to last me forever. Right. And, you know, case in point, look at those boots I mentioned right off the bat. Yeah. Those things are expensive. Yes. They are expensive. Mm -hmm. But I have a pair in my basement that are 22 years old. And I've just, at 22 years, I've had to put electrical tape around the toe because the sole's starting to separate. Now, do you have a single pair of boots that are 10 years old? They don't last, do they? No. But these are 22. I have another pair that's 20. And I bought a new pair last year um, after basically 20 years. Yeah. And the only reason I bought the new pair is that my dumbass dropped an arrow with a broadhead on it, one of our broadheads. It slipped out of my fingers and it went straight down and stuck right in the top of my right boot. <laughs> and just that, what is that? 30 inches yeah. that it fell. It went through the top of the boot far enough and pierced the, the Gore-Tex lining. Yeah. So now when they get wet, those leaks, and no, those are my, <laughs> those are my dry boots <laughs> when it's dry. And then I have my ones with the, the electrical tape that are my, basically my barn boots now yep. when we're choring around the place here. And then I have my new ones now that I'm trying to break in for hunting. But, yeah. uh, if I wouldn't have dropped that arrow, 
a couple years ago, I still wouldn't have. But the difference is, it's the difference in $200 boots that are going to last you five or six years or $400 boots that are going to last you 10 or 15 years or 20 right. years. Right. And it, everything is that way. Right. Everything is that way. But it's 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 hard. Now, in all fairness, Dan, if you have an immediate need, like if you've got to have broadheads to hunt mm -hmm. and you only have, you know, $50, I get it. I actually applaud you. I'd, I'd, what I'd rather see guys do is spend their money on what they need to go hunting and actually spend their money on tags and travel and time away to go hunting right? and not spend it on all the fancy gear so they can be on team this or team that and, and then spend their other money on going to shows and pageantry. Because you're not, you are not going to learn how to do this crap. Listen to me on this podcast. Sorry. Yeah. But what it's going to do, it's going to give you lessons to think about. So when you screw up and make that mistake, that lesson's going to resonate. You're going to learn from it and change and, and not do it again. Right. That's the thing, but you have to learn in the field. Yeah. Um, poor guys that are, that are watching hunting television and social media and all that. And they've killed a buck or two in their life and they're passing on, you know, decent bucks to try to get a gram buck. Mm -hmm. Um, when that buck of a lifetime does come by the odds of you executing the shot slim to none. Yes. Been there. So what I tell everybody is, is, Hey, if your area or the places that you're able to hunt has X amount of doe tags available, get all the doe tags, put arrows through those does. Because that's the only way that you're going to be able to execute that shot on when it comes to a really good quality animal. And, and here's the thing. I, I know you'll agree with me on this. Everybody gets an opportunity at a great animal. Just about every year, you get an opportunity. But have you noticed that it's the same small group of very few guys, the same 10% of the guys that constantly, constantly, every year, year after year, have great deer, yeah. have great animals? Have you noticed that? Yeah. And the reason is, is that the difference is, is that those people capitalize on the opportunities they're given. Mm-hmm through experience and repetition and lessons learned and actually learning from them and implementing them into the field, everybody gets the opportunity, but only a small percentage capitalize. Yeah. And you're not going to learn how to capitalize on those opportunities in the classroom. You're going to learn how to do it as a bow hunter by shooting animals with your bow. Yeah. In, in essence, Shoot that is bow. the classroom. The woods are the classroom. They are. Yep. They are animal behavior, what they're going to do, how they're going to react. Um, I'll, I'll give you something that no one's ever heard on a, on a podcast before. I actually just sent an email out to our customers last week uh, discussing this topic. Um, point of aim on an arrow with an arrow, point of aim on, on an animal with an arrow with archery equipment. 
everyone has a certain point of aim that they aim on an animal. Most of it's driven by 3D targets on where they've been told this is your 10 ring and your eight ring and so on and so forth. But one thing I've never heard anyone discuss is that point of aim on different species. Mm -hmm. Okay. So different species, believe it or not, react completely different than other species. For instance, you're wanting to come out West, right? Right. And, and you've been whitetail and mule deer hunting primarily. Yes. So a whitetail, for example, the high percentage of times that they're going to react to the sound of your bow, um, 90 to 95% of that time is going to be down and swing their head to their tail. Follow me? Yep. So you shoot at a deer, they drop, they spin away from you, and their head is going towards their tail. That's how 90, 95% of whitetails react to a shot. So an antelope, and this antelope analogy or example basically translates across the globe. If it is an antelope species in Wyoming or an antelope species in Africa, they do the same thing. And it's not a, a d d definitive thing, but it's really, really high percentage. 90, 95% of antelope species lunge forward at the sound of a shot, straight ahead. Totally opposite of what a deer does. A deer is down, gathers themselves, swings their head towards their tail away from the sound. So you've got two distinct reactions on animals. A hog does very similar to what an antelope species does. They're a forward lunging at flight reaction animal. And that doesn't matter if it's a hog in South Alabama or a warthog in Africa. Hog species, believe it or not, react the same. It's very, very interesting. So for me, through these experiences over the years, when I'm holding on a whitetail, depending on the distance, because distance is a factor, I may have that pin almost mid-body between the legs, mm -hmm. okay? And very low, depending on the distance. Okay. Because when that animal drops and spins away, he's bringing the bulk of the vitals into the path of the arrow. But if you're holding on the vitals right behind the shoulder and he drops and spins away, high shoulder, high shoulder, high shoulder. Yep. Where does everybody lose their deer? High shoulder. High shoulder hits. And it's not that they executed a bad shot. It's that that small amount or large amount of animal reaction moved those vitals out of the path of the arrow and moved that high shoulder arrow into the path of the air. Yeah. So I hold differently on those types of animals. Um, an antelope or a hog, believe it or not, I know everybody talks about the plate on a hog, but if you have the right stuff, it's irrelevant. Um, antelope, hog, anything that is a forward lunging animal, my pin or crosshair on my bow is straight up and down the front leg, straight up and down the front leg. I'm right in the middle of the shoulder because even the smallest reaction from them, if it moves three inches forward, you're in the goodies, yeah. right in the center of the vitals, which is top of heart, middle of lungs. And so how I learned this is not from just, you know, <laughs> 
in, in, intuition or genius or anything like that. It's from repetition. Right. I was like, damn, I keep hitting all these whitetails high in the shoulder, high in the shoulder, hitting them forward. And then when I was shooting so many hogs over the years, I'm like, man, I'm hitting them back in the liver just about every shot. And so those are the things that were kind of turn the light bulb on. It's like, what is happening? And then once you do it enough, you see what's going on. So this is something that a person can actually learn from listening to others. Yeah. It's, it's, are they going to have the mental capacity or the wherewithal to actually implement that into the field? Yes. And when I had guys come from the Western States who were hunting a lot of forward lunging animals, um, when I had them come to Alabama and deer hunt, I kept telling them, hey, if you're going to take a shot at that deer at 30 yards, your pin needs to be on its belly, and it needs to be almost midway between the front and the back leg. They could not bring themselves to hold their pin there. They could not do it. They had to hold on the 10 ring. It's just that thing that's just beat into your head. They had to hold on the 10 ring. And they would, you know, completely miss or shoulder shoot, things like that. So I don't know that I've ever heard anybody mention that before. Yeah, but that's good insight. That is, it's, a, it's an incredible lesson to learn uh, if you're going to hunt multiple species west and east. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we've been at it here for an hour and a half, and, and uh, I really appreciate oh, your boy. insight. And I uh, really appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to us about day six i know there's a lot more to talk about um i will say that if you guys are uh, interested in day six gear go to day6gear.com and take a look at all of the, the stuff i mean i'll just say it best arrow on the market and um hand, like just hands down best arrow on the market better than anything i've ever used and that is an that is an unbiased opinion by the way, I know some of you out there might think it's biased, but it's not. So, um, uh, Brian, man, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. We're going to definitely have to do it again, man. Yeah, you bet.